This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. Well, uh, my name's Matt, and um, if you don't know me, and um, seven months ago, uh, my wife Kelly and I had our first child, and uh, those of you who are parents will know that life changes, and you start asking, when you look at your diary and look at your week, where, where's all the space gone? And Kelly keeps asking me, where's the space to exercise? Where, 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 where's the space to, to go out and see this person? Where, where's the space to clean? Where, where's the space to get things organized? Where is it all gone? What happened to it all? Anybody know that feeling? Yeah. And uh, this morning, we're continuing our series, Legacy of Faith, that we've been uh, running through the whole year, about half of our teaching this year has been on this theme. And in a few weeks' time, I'm going to round up this theme, and we're going to be thinking, finally, one more time, about this task, this task of leaving a legacy of faith. What does that mean, and what does that look like? But today, I want to come at that from a different angle and ask this space question. Where, if at all, is the space for faith? That's what we're going to think about this morning. And um, There's an occasion in Jesus' life that is really going to help us think through this. It's in Matthew chapter 22. It's recorded. And what happens is Jesus gets into a situation where people try to catch him out. They try to trip him up. They they try to make him look foolish. They try to discredit him. They they, they try to uh, push him away to, to irrelevance. And the way they do it is a way that you'll be familiar with if you watch TV. If you watch the news or if you watch any of the political commentary shows. And we're seeing a lot of politics at the moment. It's been a busy year with the EU referendum and now the US presidential election, amongst other things. And it's what the commentators and the interviewers and the producers love to do more than anything is to trip people up. You know, we love seeing politicians squirm. It's like a sport, isn't it? It's like a hobby in this country. It's like popular hobbies. Fishing, golf, and watching politicians squirm. We love it. We love it. And this is kind of what happened with Jesus, that he was asked the question. It wasn't, and it was a question that was completely designed to trip him up. And it's in Matthew chapter 22, and in verse 15, it says that, Then the Pharisees, these were a group of religious leaders and teachers, and uh, they went out and laid plans to trap him, that's Jesus, in his words. They sent their disciples to him, along with her audience. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity, and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others, because you pay no attention to who they are. So this is kind of flattery. So uh, be on your guard. You know when somebody flatters you? You know, be ready for the, you know, the kind of sucker punch coming at the end of it. And, And this is what happens. So verse 17, this is a question. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Let's just stop there for a moment. So they ask him this question. Is it right to pay taxes, to pay the imperial tax? So what's happened is the Romans have come into this land. They have conquered your lands. They have displaced you. They have set up rule. And they want you to pay them for the privilege of being conquered. 
So as you can imagine, people weren't happy about this. I mean, people still aren't happy about paying taxes, but people really weren't happy. I mean, at least in this country, we say, okay, we've got a degree of freedom, yeah? We more think of our politicians as incompetent than evil most of the time. And we're all bumbling along, and we're trying to do the right thing, and we understand that we need an NHS, and we need roads, and we need transport, and we need all this stuff, and we get that. And we don't like paying taxes, but we need to do it. But for these people, they hated paying taxes. It reminded them every day that they were subjects, that, that they had been conquered. It reminded them who said was boss around there. They hated paying these taxes. So they asked him this question, which is a no-win question. You see, because if Jesus says it's right to pay taxes, they say, aha, we've got you. You're just a collaborator. You're a co-conspirator with the Romans. Here you are. You're not serious about this whole kingdom of God thing. You're just playing along. You just, you, it's just words. And really, you're just in bed with the Romans like everybody else. You've given him up. But if we say, no, don't pay your taxes, well, it's kind of like today. You're going to end up in trouble. Today you might end up in jail, but then you would end up on a cross. Just before... Uh, this, there was another man named Judas, a popular name at the time, and he led a revolution. So the Romans left him and his followers on crosses dotted throughout the countryside to remind people that paying taxes is not optional. It's compulsory. So what was Jesus to do? Either he said no, and they knew what might befall him if he, if he said no, don't pay your taxes. But if he said yes, well, he's kind of given up. He's not serious about this kingdom of God stuff. And Jesus knows this. And in verse 18, it says that. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. So they took this coin out of their pocket, which showed that they were handling the money. That's why he says to them, you hypocrites. It shows that actually they were part of the system. They were handling the money. They were using this system. They were complicit in it. They weren't the ones to challenge him. They didn't have their integrity. They couldn't call him out on this in the first place. Maybe they were the ones that were compromised, playing their little religious games whilst everything else carried on unchallenged. And you can imagine as they, as they picked out this coin and they gave it to Jesus, Tom Wright says, it would have been like being handed a dead rat. As this coin had a face on it, like our coins do, but it wasn't the face of Queen Elizabeth II, it was the face of Caesar. And for the Jews, they weren't to put faces, to put images on coins. But not only was there an image on the coin, which was already offensive to the Jews, but the coin was inscribed with the words, Son of God, and high priest. How could a Jew even handle this money? It's blasphemous to even touch it, to use it, to hold it. Jesus shows up their hypocrisy. But then he gives them this brilliant line, and it's here in verse 20. He says, whose image is this, and whose inscription that we just described? Verse 21, Caesar's there replied. Then he said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And Jesus says this, well, maybe you should pay back Caesar in his own coin. 
I mean, that kind of sounds like revolution. It, it, it kind of sounds like an insult, but at the same time, it, he allows for them to, to, to pay the taxes. He doesn't say that now is the time to stop paying taxes. But, but, it, but it, he shows up that there's hypocrisy involved in what they're doing. But then he brings a bigger truth. But what do you owe God? What, 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 what do you owe to God? Isn't it your whole life? Isn't everything you do, aren't you accountable to somebody greater than Caesar? Isn't there a bigger level of accountability, a different leader out there? That is the true allegiance that you need to give. Jesus brilliantly diverts this question. It says in verse 22 that when they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. But the reality is today that we have so misunderstood this text that we think when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God, we're, we're talking about some sort of division, some sort of secular spiritual, some sort of religious and state division, where Jesus is saying that these things are separate, but when we understand as we've just shared the context, Jesus is actually saying the exact opposite. Is there space for faith? You know, it had been said over the last few generations that we would soon see the end of religion. That there wouldn't be any more space for faith. That those who were still clinging on to religion were just uneducated. And once we could share education a bit more wildly, we would soon see the end of religion. But that secular prophecy has failed. Religion's booming and growing all over the world. And actually... The claims of the new atheists have been refuted and debated point by point. There's intellectual arguments for people of faith and there's intellectual arguments of people who do not have faith or do not believe in God. And this is no way to solve the argument either way. The worst crimes against humanity, despite the protestations of many who say that religion causes wars and violence in the 20th century have been wreaked by the Nazis and the Soviets and the Chinese, the children of the Enlightenment who've killed many more people in recent history than those motivated by religion. And now the idea of a neutral state, that the state is neutral but religion is biased, has been doubted and rubbished by postmodernism. And we know that we're all committed, that we all have beliefs. So secularists no longer can claim these sort of arguments. So they've been happy to say, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. Misunderstanding what Jesus said and relegating faith to the private. Is that the space for faith? Is faith something that you should do in private? What we often forget because we don't know our history that this idea of the secular, the public sphere, is actually a Christian idea. So this word secular actually comes from Latin and it means generation or age. And Christians began to speak about this idea that this age, this current system and way of doing things is passing away. So within it, there is a sphere where which authorities should be respected, where people can go on and govern and do things that are right and that will help society and we can act and debate and ideas can be criticized within that sphere. But people acting like governments should never be afforded ultimate significance because it just belongs to this age that is passing away. 
This idea of a secular space is actually a Christian legacy. It's a legacy of faith. And it actually requires an ongoing Christian presence to allow it to remain true to itself and let it know that it, it doesn't have ultimate significance. Reality is a society which scorns morality, a a counterbalance to to human greed that often subjugates people, is poorer. A society which scorns meaning is poorer. Faith deals with essential questions, and therefore it can't be removed from the public square. But sadly, it's not just atheists who want to keep faith out of the public square. What's happened, particularly over the last hundred years in popular theology, the kind of theology we do, we read, the popular books, the best-selling Christian books, the most popular sermons, the biggest conferences, has talked about the fact that this Gordon Caesar division, they've said that we should concentrate on heavenly rather than earthly concerns. And they've ignored Jesus' message of the kingdom. And they've wanted to allow for a legacy of faith without deeds. In James chapter 2, and we're going to have this on screen, James asks this question, and he says this in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith, but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of them, you, says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith it by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. That's why our purpose statement at Life Church is about impacting communities. Do you want to have a legacy of faith without deeds? You know, if you watch Christian TV or go to the biggest conferences or read the best-selling books, it seems that people are happy for that. But that wasn't Jesus' message. So our purpose is to impact communities. Because you show me your faith without deeds, but James says, I'll show you my faith by what I do. You know, this is what the church at its best has always been doing. In the Victorian era, there was the growth of charities and, and voluntary schemes. And three out of four of these charities in Britain were run by evangelical Christians. 75%, that's amazing. But what happened after World War II is we saw the rise of the welfare state. In 1948, there was a survey, and 90% of people in Britain felt that charities would no longer be needed. Nearly 70 years later, how are we doing? (laughs) See, what happened is things swung back and forth in history, and uh, and moments when we felt that, you know, the state was the model for helping people, and then we felt, no, charities were the model for helping people. Uh, You know, I guess the answer's a bit of both. And and I guess what happened is that at times, do-gooding became an insult, Victorians said it was, uh, after Victorians in the Edwardian times, they said it was as dirty a word as philanthropy. Because it's the idea that we have something, so we will help you, the poor. And we will stay in our safe, comfortable uh, position. And it was was very paternal. And people really reacted against that. And this whole idea of do-gooding became a dirty word, as it still is for some people today. A recent example of how things shift back and forth is David Cameron's call for a big society, that we should all be out in our communities caring for each other and starting projects and uh, looking after people and uh, volunteering. And 
Isn't what the, this what the church at its best has always been doing? In a space where faith is supposed to be private, but we want everyone to go out and help people. It's a weird conversation. I'm going to bring up uh, Mark, and uh, we're going to hear a little bit of Mark's story right now. Uh, so, Mark, if you could come up, and uh, we're going to think about this idea because um, because it's really incredible how it. Um, yeah, come on, let's welcome Mark. It's incredible how some of this stuff plays out. So, Mark, um, you're familiar to many people, but not everybody. And um, I wanted to hear a bit of your story, really. So we'll come to kind of what you're doing today. But um, some of this stuff we've been talking about, about impacting communities, about, about helping people, about being involved in that place and having an actual practical demonstration of faith that makes a difference to people. How did you first get involved in that? How did you first get passionate about that or interested in that or, or want to, to do that? Oh, taking us back a long way. Um, hello, everybody. Um, I, think, I think when I was 19, I was inspired by a, a little fellow with a beard who uh, ran a, a youth group in a church that I went to. And he started talking to me about the, the fact that I could get involved. And, and I think if I take it way back when... Um, I was 18, 19 years old, I started being bothered about other people and I thought, well, I'm, I'm doing all right, so if that young person isn't as confident as me, then maybe I can get to know them and, and, and help them. And um, Jeff really encouraged me. Sorry, the little man with the beard. Sorry. Too Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's when I, was, when I was younger, that's what he was. Um, Obviously, now he's my hero, but, but way back then, um, I think I've dug my way out of that. But Jeff really encouraged me to get involved, and I think that grew then into to really trying to help younger people as it was back then. Mm. So, tell us about the shift when it became almost your career or your full-time work to figure out how can I help people. Yep, I was, um, I was driving a white van for a, a friend of mine. That was my job. And inside... Uh, I couldn't decide if I was dying or growing. And I just had this burning passion that I've had all my life. And this is about seven years ago. And I really felt um, God was challenging me to not drive a white van, which I didn't really want to do, and, and get involved in something. So I got involved in an organization, helped set it up. And uh, the person I was working with said, listen, the, the church, Life Church, are doing this food bank thing. Why don't you have a look at it, see if you can get involved? I didn't want to. Uh, I thought people who needed that kind of help needed a bit of a kick in. Uh, I was completely wrong. I thought that, um, you know, it'd be a very, very small thing, and, and I was a bit reluctant. Within three or four days of getting involved, and again, seeing that there were people who were, in my eyes, less fortunate than me that I could do something about, that's definitely when it, it started, where you meet people who you think, if I give you food, that's a very simple way of helping. So that's when it kind of mm. started about six or seven years ago and then grew into doing that uh, full-time as part of a social enterprise that was called Community Solutions Northwest. Some of you will have heard about. And then really trying to look at that issue of poverty in not in places millions of miles away, but actually on our streets. And this was the thing I was trying to get my head around. In my town of Burnley and the surrounding areas of Hindburn and Pendle, there were people who were making choices of, I, I've not fed myself for three days because I want to give my child beans on toast at least once in those three days. And I, I couldn't equate, so I had to get involved, had yeah, to yeah. look at it and see if we could do something. Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, 
we talked about the Victorian era and there was this idea of the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. What helped you sort of get over that so you weren't thinking about, you know, does this person deserve something? Or, you know what I mean? Because I think for a lot of people it stops them from doing every, anything. Yeah. Um, and it leads to us treating people in a certain way. H- how did you sort of shift in, you've kind of given insight that maybe you had an element of that. And I think we, we all do because we're schooled in it a lot by sections of the media. So how did you get over that and start to kind of just love people and value people and, and change your thinking and that? I, I think I had a concept of, back seven years ago, that I wanted to get involved in this word community. And then I was scared because I thought, I don't know what that means. So I did a course, and I did, um, I've not got an O-level or a, a, an exam to my name, so I did a postgraduate, like you do, snuck my <laughs> way in, and started to learn what community was. And all it taught me was, it isn't actually academic. And, and what, it, what changed for me was the massive shift back to where I was when I was 18 and 19 of its people. So if you find somebody in need, that somebody isn't a statistic or fitting into some demographic of society or mm. part of this magic word community. It's just an, it's another man. It's another woman. It's a young mum. It's, it's five kids in a, in a family. And I think the shift for me was back to people. Love, love, love God and love your neighbour. And, and looking at that thing of your neighbour. And uh, I found that really, it was quite enlightening. I know it sounds really simple and you might have already got it, but it's not this mm. thing called community that's out there. Yeah. It's just people. Right. The person who sat next to you could be the next person that we help. Or they probably look like them or live next door to them. And that was a massive shift in my thinking mm. of back to being people. And there are some people who are facing some horrific situations that we want to get involved in. Absolutely. So could you just give us a brief, like, whistle-stop tour or some highlights of the last seven years? Some of the people you've helped, some of the projects you've done, some of the... Numbers, some of the things you've seen over, over seven years. Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> um, it's always difficult because you don't want to highlight somebody's problem just to, to make what you do look good. But the reality yeah. of when you're really involved in some of the most vulnerable people, it, it is good to highlight some of their situations. And I, I'm, I'm always, I always go back to this with a, a young woman. Some of you will have heard this story, but you could times it by 100 that it's happened 100 times since. We're a young mum who was reluctant to receive one of our food parcels. We home deliver them. We don't, we're not a drop-in centre. We take them to people's homes. Jeff mentioned the phrase right at the beginning. It's, it's a hand up, not just a hand out. And this young mum was really reluctant to take the food parcel. And she'd never had charity before. She didn't fit into my demographic of what I thought people would be. She was normal. She was a young mum. She loved the kids. But she was proud. And we had to convince her to take the parcel. And we did it by asking well, what are you going to do this weekend if we don't come round? And she said, don't worry, I've borrowed four slices of bread and a tin of beans so that my eight-year-old can have something to eat. And I just found that harrowing. And I thought, we've got to do something, even if we just go and knock on a door and, and give her some food, and we, we, we managed to. And then the big thing from, from stories like that is it's no good just giving them food. So we try and engage with people, and probably the best story we've got is a guy who came to us with the longest criminal record ever. We were helping him with food. He now works 16 hours a week in one of our partner agencies and volunteers the other 16 hours of the week running our uh, food collections and different things. And to see the transformation in his life from a bag of food is Mm. humbling but also inspiring as well. That's brilliant. So maybe finally, um, for the last year, and you've just 
celebrate your anniversary. You've been uh, leading Spacious Place Engage, which is yeah. just based upon Trafalgar, about a mile away from here. And um, could you just tell us, um, just like the challenges of being involved in that and, and always being out in, in faith for that, and maybe how people can help you and support what you know we're doing? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we're a year old on the 1st of November, Spacious Place Engage. Um, this would be really nice if I told you it was an amazing year. It's been the hardest year of my life, um, probably the most rewarding year of my life, but I always think faith stories are better told or easier to tell at the end. So if you're looking mm. back five years ago and telling somebody the faith story, you've got the ending, haven't you? The faith story for Spacious Place Engage is really tough. Um, just in the year, just to throw some ideas of, of what we, we do, we do a lot more than food bank, but I think food kind of helps people to... to ground it a little bit. Um, we've, we've had 5,700 brand new referrals in our year of Spacious Place, which equates to feeding thousands and thousands of people. Um, sorry, 2,700 referrals, 5,700 people. It equates to about 52 brand new referrals every week, or 110 people in Burnley that if we don't give them food, they don't have any food. And, and I think that is it's quite important to, to get that, that it's not airy-fairy, you know, mm. that these people are in genuine need because we spend a lot of time trying to find that out. So 110 people every week. And that actually costs us about £25 for every referral. Mm. If you're not very good at maths, I've got to raise £150,000 every year mm. just to keep the thing going, just mm. to do what we do. Are they not you can do this year? Yeah, there's lots of things that we do, and I've probably got that down to near 120 for next year. There's no government support. There's no big society support. You've got to go and find this money yourself. There are grants that you can go for. But our way of doing it, our model is that we think as a social enterprise, we can be enterprising. So we sell things. We sell paint. And, and this is, I was saying to Matt when he invited me, I'll end up finishing on a sales pitch. But, you know, if you buy paint from me, rather than spending £25 or £30 on a tin, you spend a tenner. More than half of that money goes into that £25 for the food parcel. So we've got a paint shop. Come and buy paint from us. Mm. We're cheaper than anywhere else in town. It's better quality paint because it's not watered down. It is a sales pitch. We're just branching into... That's good. We're branching into next year uh, selling furniture. Not second-hand clearance furniture, but brand-new branded items that would have been in Marks and Spencer's next and John Lewis, but you can get them at half price. Because if you do that, 20% of that money goes into the food bank and actually puts some food onto the table of people who are making decisions about whether they eat or not. So how can people help? Come and buy things from us. Sign up to our monthly giving scheme if you're interested. Come and talk to me. Come and have a look at us. Come and have a look around. We've got massive ideas of what we want to do in the future. But the, chari- the, the, the challenge now is the faith challenge of resource. Mm. Um, I've not got the 12,000, 13,000 pounds I need for November in the bank. I never have at this time of the month for 12 months. Uh, and that's, that's the faith journey for us of trying to put some legs on it. So come and talk to us. Get involved. Uh, one last story. I've delivered, sorry, Matt. I delivered a food parcel on Friday to somebody because it's fresh in my mind. I, I gave this parcel to this gentleman. He was really, really grateful. His wife had just come out of hospital. They'd had some real problems. He's had to give up work to look after his wife. And he looked at the parcel and then he, his face sank a little bit. So I, what is it? Went, no, I'm embarrassed. I'll go on, tell me. What, you don't like fish or something like that? He said, no. He said, our electric's just gone. Our electric meter's just finished. I thought I had three pounds on and it might get us through Saturday and it's just gone, it's gone off and I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. Do you have any telephone numbers? 
So obviously I prayed for him and I went back to my nice four-bed semi and came here today and I've just thought about him now. Well, I didn't actually. I got hold of him and I said, come on, let's get round to the shop. Where's your little key card? He took his key card into the shop. I got a tenner, put a tenner on his, on his key card so that I knew that he could eat for the weekend. And what's really important to us in the challenges of faith stories is stay generous because we've got to help people, haven't we? We've yeah. got to find a way of helping people. And um, I didn't have £10. I had to go to the cash machine and get £10 and help him. But for me, you can hear stories like this and you can think, oh, that's great, and I'll pray for you. Please do. I love people praying for us. But maybe you could take me yeah. to the shop and put 10 quid on my electric meter as well. Great. Thanks, Mark. So, I want to just bring up a few challenges, a few words that come that challenge this idea of faith having a space in the public arena. And some of these objections. And the first one is this, that religion creates division. And the argument is that people like Mark are out there helping people. They're only going to help people in their sectarian way. They're going to be biased. They're going to be divisive. They're going to help their own. They're going to discriminate. And and religion is not something we want in that place. But this fear really is a fear about difference. It's a fear that actually we can't have people who are from different faith traditions or different backgrounds or different races or different communities being involved in things. Actually, we all need to be the same. And what it leaves is really this kind of insipid grey wash over everything. And really, I think it's cool that people from different backgrounds, different traditions, can actually work and be engaged in society. And the true story is that the reality betrays the theory. You see, when it comes to faith, people of faith contributing in society, it doesn't have to be sectarian. It's often not. In fact, a lot of these groups and projects and ideas and work actually bring people together. Look at us today. We're from different ages, different walks of life, different generations, different backgrounds, and here we are together. And often when people work out in the community, it works to connect people in new ways. The government now are concerned with well-being, started to talk this different language, started to ask if people are happy. We have an Office of National Statistics Happiness Index. But this for a long time has actually been a religious concern. What did the prophets do? The prophets spoke truth to power. So when the government uh, and, and powerful businesses and powerful forces in society are making certain decisions... Religions have long asked, the prophets have long asked, and we should be that prophetic voice that asks, yeah, but how will this affect people? How will this affect the planet? What are things going to be like in the long term? But when we do this, we have to be really careful that we, the way we talk about things, we need to talk about things in a way that everybody can get on board with if we want to see things change. We have to talk about things in a universalist way, not a particularist way. This is... Uh, something that fits with our Christianity really well. It's called the doctrine of accommodation. It means this. God speaks such though we can understand it. If God speaks in a way we can understand. We have the ultimate example of this in the incarnation. God became man. He communicated to us in a way that we should understand. Paul did this in his evangelism when he spoke to people in a way we should understand. And we should still do the same today. You know, if we say, God told me, 
you're going to alienate a lot of the people that you're trying to reach or that you're trying to work with. This week, this guy, he's a president of the Philippines. His name's Rodrigo Duterte, but you all knew that, right? His picture's going to be on screen. And um, do you know this guy? He's the guy who called both Barack Obama and the Pope the son of a whore. It's a real kind of nice, you know, friendly kind of gentleman. And uh, he's been kind of sounding off doing all this kind of thing. And then he said this week, he says, I'm going to stop swearing. And everyone's like, oh, that's incredible. Why? He says, God told me. And I quote, I heard a voice telling me to stop swearing or the plane will crash in midair. Well, I'm glad this guy's going to, you know, kind of moderate his language. I don't think it's helpful to speak at the UN and use these sorts of insults for other world leaders. But what I want to know is, who is this God who makes planes crash? What's this about? I heard a voice tell me to stop swearing or the plane will crash in midair. And I just feel like saying to this guy, Rodrigo, you're making us look bad. Like, you're making people of faith look really bad. Like, there's this God, and he's going to make planes crash unless, like, people make promises to him about their language and the way of speaking. And this whole God-told-me sort of argument just doesn't work. A big story in the news this week has been uh, 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 that the uh, appeal for the Ashes Bakery and picture of the owners is here on screen has failed. So this was a bakery, if you remember, uh, this young couple here in Northern Ireland, they own a chain of bakeries, and uh, they refused to uh, bake a following cake, which you see the picture on screen, which says promote, uh, get support gay marriage. And um, their appeal was quashed, and, and they were, the verdict was given that they should have baked this cake, or they should be made to bake this kind of cake. But it's, it's funny that when you start the, the argument or the appeal with the idea of, well, well, God told me we shouldn't be doing this because God told me we shouldn't be doing this, or God told me we shouldn't support gay marriage, or this kind of thing. And, and, and I, I don't want to heap more misery on these people because I think if, if we just put the issue to one side and take the fact that here's people who are acting based on their own conviction, I think based on that, they've handled themselves with incredible dignity in a really difficult situation, and I really uh, want to honor that. But um, they said, they made some really good points, but they, they often kind of had this, you know, epilogue of, we're doing this because we serve God, and we worship God, and he's our saving, and all this kind of thing. And, and that just kind of puts you in a place where people stop listening. But there's an amazing article this week, and the article was by a man named Peter Tatchell. You might have heard of him, because for decades and decades, he's been a prominent gay rights campaigner. And this is not the kind of person that you think would be defending born-again Christians who don't want to bake a cake supporting gay marriage. But he made this point. Hang on a second. If these people who don't support gay marriage, which is not legal in Northern Ireland, are made to promote this political message, surely a homosexual baker can be made to bake a cake which says, stop gay marriage. Surely a black person can be made to print a t-shirt for the white supremacists. Surely a Muslim printer can be made to print cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. And he made this point that this sets a dangerous and authoritarian precedent. You see, here we have an issue that we should have all shared. But because it was talked about in a certain way, people just thought, here we go, religions again, having a go at homosexuals. They don't like homosexuals. And this became the issue. 
Whereas actually, it's a much bigger issue about liberty and people being forced to do things that are against their conscience. Do we want to live in a country like that? I don't think we do. But we need to talk about things in a way where everybody can get on board and everybody can understand. And when we do, we'll find unlikely allies, maybe, like Peter Tatchell. Secondly, religion prevents cooperation. How can we work with these religious people? Because we have these human concerns, and these, they have these concerns, which are all about God. Their concerns are transcendent, they're heavenly, they're divine. Now, this is a fair point to a degree. Religious people have principles, so maybe they won't be pragmatic. But really, this isn't a criticism of religion. This is a criticism of ideology. If you look at ideologies uh, like utopia or totalitarianism, they can face the same criticism. And Christianity has its own answer, again, in the incarnation. God became man, he became human, he became flesh. Therefore, human concerns are of ultimate value. The religious life we see in Christianity, as Rowan Williams says, is material. You see, religion actually makes a difference in people's lives. The Prime Minister's Strategy Unit did some research into this, and they found in their research into religions, mainly in Christianity, that religious people, I quote, report higher levels of life satisfaction. I'm not saying, therefore, everybody should become religious. That's a poor argument for it. But what I am saying is that we can't say that somehow having these principles uh, should diminish or negatively impact our human life. And this idea that religions don't like compromise, they're ruled by inflexible dogma, it is often true with some people on the fringes, but it doesn't have to be. And a great example of this is in the career of Anne Widdicombe. Okay, this is a serious issue, so maybe we'll, we'll use a different picture. But Anne Widdicombe, uh, early in her career... She was, and she's, she, she's a part of the Roman Catholic faith today. She's a very religious and outspoken uh, religious person of faith. And when she first won a seat, she was faced with this private member's bill that wanted to reduce the upper time limit for abortion from 28 to 18 weeks. Now, how could she support an abortion bill? That was against her convictions, especially when it came to the second reading, because at the second reading, an exemption was provided for disabled which meant that if a child uh, 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 over 18 weeks was found to be disabled, they could still abort. This was anathema to her beliefs about the value of human life. Yet, it was a compromise worth making. What Anne Whittacombe did is she looked into to the statistics and she t- found that only 8% of the terminations after 18 weeks were because of handicap. So therefore, she said this, I argued that if I were to be confronted with a shipwreck and 100 drowning people, I would not refuse to save 92 for the sake of the eight I could not reach. We should, I believed, maximize the saving of unborn life rather than take an absolute position which would guarantee failure. Instead of all or nothing, she understood that was an opportunity to save 92% of the children in this race. And that's often what religion does. It works together with people to provide a better result. We need wisdom to find that when compromise is a good idea so we can cooperate. And when compromise 
starts to become against the spirit of Christ. And that's something we talked about last year as we considered the life of Daniel. And finally, people say that religion breeds extremists. Today we have rogue states and ideological terrorists. Religious extremism is all over the news. It's debated in Parliament. It's talked about in our newspapers. It's discussed on social media. But really, the argument goes that extremism is not the issue. Violence is the issue. The issue is, is the ideology of violent coercion. Should we force people to do things? Just like forcing people to bake a cake. Should we force things? It's an ideology that says we should violently coerce people. We should force people into certain ways of doing things and certain way of being things. This isn't religion. This isn't faith. This isn't Christianity. This isn't Christ. But it's not even extremism. The problem is violence. And perhaps violence needs to be responded to with just as much passion. I want to finish by reading this letter. During the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. was many times arrested and persecuted. On one occasion, he was arrested and taken to Birmingham jail in Alabama. And from jail, he wrote this long letter saying, well, I didn't have much else to do. And in it, he says this. I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. But I have tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled through the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. Now, this approach is being dismissed as extremist. I must admit that I was initially disappointed in being so categorized. But as I continue to think about the matter, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being considered an extremist. Was Jesus not an extremist in love? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Was Amos not an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I can do none other, so help me God. I imagine Luther, uh, Luther King writing from his cell. Was not John Bunyan an extremist? I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. Was not Abraham Lincoln an extremist? This nation cannot survive half slave and half free. Was not Thomas Jefferson an extremist? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate? Or will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice? Or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? He finishes this section by saying that in that dramatic scene on Calvary's hill, three men were crucified. We must not forget that all three were crucified for the same crime. The crime of extremism. Two were extremists for Immorality and thusly fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. So after all, maybe the South, the nation, and the world 
are in dire need of creative extremists. Discover more about us at lifelanks.org and stay inspired by subscribing to the podcast via iTunes. Thanks for listening.